everybody, and welcome back to Writing the Rapids, the show where I, Joe Balecki, talk to writers about writing. Very often those writers have been recommended to me by writers who have previously been on the show, or it's a rejoinder episode, but this is one of the normal ones. In the case of this month's guest, Mila Jeronic, she was recommended to me by Charlene Elsby, who I just had on again. So if you like this episode, go back and listen to those, and if you liked those, stick around for this one. Mila Jeronic is the author of Plastic Vodka Bottle Sleepover and the creator and editor of Black Lipstick. Her work has appeared in Playgirl, Playboy, Joyland, Ninth Letter, Pank, Volume 1, Brooklyn, Southwest Review, The Millions, Nylon, and Teen Vogue, among others. She earned her MFA from the New School and teaches at Writing Colab and Grub Street. She is represented by Annie DeWitt at the Shipman Agency. If you'd like to help out this show, you can become a patron for just $2 a month over at patreon.com slash noisemakerjoe. You can get these episodes about a day earlier than everybody else. Or you could buy my book. It's called Tired. It's out through Alien Buddha Press. It's on Amazon, and it's pretty good. An excerpt of it appears in the collection that just came out called Unheimlich through Soyos Press, and there's a whole bunch of other people, uh, some of whom might be familiar if you're a longtime listener of this show. Now, without further ado, let's get into my conversation with Mila. I noticed that previous guest, Shara Gerard, um, blurbed plastic vodka bottle sleepover. Um, and I mentioned some Goodreads reviews during her episode. And I want to bring up a Goodreads review now because it's one of the best ones I've seen. Um, it's from Goodreads uh, user Jane from January 4, 2017. A relief to read about NYC exploits that don't involve men. <laughs> It was a fantastic, fantastic review um, that I didn't read until I was also rating the book myself. But I think, I think a fantastic um, that needs to go on like the next edition of of the book, like right on right on the front. Um, and and it kind of like grounded the novel for me in. Um, or like solidified some things I was thinking about because I like these novels where somebody in their 20s is just kind of having a hard time. Um, I think that's like the American novel tradition uh, to some extent, but um, I guess I hadn't read one that isn't like a dude just going around to getting drunk and stoned the whole time. So... Um, I don't know. Was was that something that was like in your mind as you were writing that book, or? Oh, or um, you mean you mean like, you know, the sort of the gender binary or yeah. anything like that? You know what? Not really. It's one of those things that I noticed, um, like upon you know publication and the reception of the book. You know, people were pointing this out. You know, much like this review, and to me, it just. You know, I mean, there's men in there, but they're just, they're sort of, you know, auxiliary characters now and again. I mean, really the, the main male character is entirely off stage the whole time. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I think it's just my world. Like, I, it's a very woman-centered world. Yeah. So not, no. <laughs> okay. That's, an, that's cool, too. I, I like that. I, one of the things that I said on a, on a past episode that somebody mentioned to me that they really like is that I like to write something and then have other people tell me what it's about. So yes, it's, it's I a, agree. 
it's nice to see what you miss, right? And then I think that helps you for next time. Yeah, 100%. I mean, that's sort of the beauty of it, um, you know, of the novel of writing period is, you know, as Norman Mailer said, it is the spooky art, right? It's like the, it's the closest, um, I mean, it's the closest thing to telepathy kind of, like you can transplant a mind and, you know, you, you present this, this art and then someone is out there perceiving it and then they make connections that you didn't intend and they see things that you didn't put together consciously, which is amazing. And that's where, you know, that's sort of where the magic happens to be, you know, kind of, um, I guess magic. Yeah. Alchemy, right. Is what I mean. Um, because they bring something to it that would not have existed. Right. So like to me, literature is a book that requires the reader, right? Some books kind of don't to exist, but the ones that affect you, like you need to be there, like bringing in like your shareship table. Yeah. Um, I also noticed, um, noticed i guess is kind of underplays it but hopscotch plays uh quite a role in this book um and like the protagonist i haven't really read it either i have it it's on a, it's on my bookshelf it's waiting to be read um but but it's not there it was one of those where it, i was i don't know oh, the the specter of house of leaves is coming back to this podcast but i was talking to somebody about house of leaves and they were like oh you should read hopscotch um and so I bought it and flipped through it and said, oh, yeah, this is this is cool. And it, I haven't read it yet. But um, beyond sort of being a device, it kind of feels like the way that the book is structured is kind of in that sort of like you're getting scenes from all over the place sort of way. Yeah, I did. I did kind of intend that. I mean... The book can be read forwards and backwards. It's a little bit disjointed if you just take scenes out of order. I mean, it could work, um, but I really did borrow heavily from it. And the thing with Hopscotch is um, it took me a while, a long time to actually get started. It took me years um, since it was recommended to me to actually read it because every time I'd open it, I'd be overwhelmed because sometimes a book is, you know, so good with such technical skill and you know the author's a genius. You're like, hold on, I got to put this down. I'm not emotionally prepared and it took me such a long time and so then i i kind of transplanted that to my narrator who just cannot <laughs> like she knows it's a symbol of it's it's a symbol of something deep and you know it's it could probably help her along in life but she just can't but it's a constant companion right um i mean in fact i have books that i got you know from friends or people close to me like a decade ago even and i keep them but i've never read them yet <laughs> yeah you just just have all those albatrosses just hanging around i we um my wife and i recently uh re-alphabetized our bookshelves down in our main library but the the room is now full of bookshelves we just can't fit any more in there and all of the bookshelves are full so we've started taking books off the bookshelf that we know we haven't read and know we want to read um, and it's been really interesting, like pulling a book off and being like, I'm pretty sure I bought this in high school and yeah. just, it's the only Vonnegut book I own. I knew I was supposed to read him at some point. And so now he's, <laughs> now he's up in the bedroom and, and who knows, God willing. Um, some, <laughs> there he will sit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, he keeps getting closer and closer and closer to my nightstand. So eventually <laughs> he'll get there. Um, 
to that point to the construction of of the book did you how how did you decide like what scene what chapter goes where Mm, okay that's a good question um so the first book really it was composed in an imagistic type of way um you know because you know time is all over the place even though it is linked you know in the the timeline of of one day in one place you know the actual timeline of the story is everywhere so i made sure that an image um that was for example ending one scene would be the one to start the next or a person or a conversation and how i structured that was you know i printed out the whole thing and i literally rearranged it on the floor um several times just taking up a room and i'd put it one way and look at a sequence and then you know change and i did that for a couple weeks mm-hmm. i think um so I did get, since we mentioned Goodreads at the beginning, I'm not one of those authors that is overly concerned with it. I'm not like, never look at Goodreads or, you know, care a lot about Goodreads. I I feel that, you know, I've written the book. It is published. It is outside of me. It's none of my business, like what anybody thinks. And if someone were to tag me in a bad review, I mean, that's gauche, but it wouldn't like ruin my life. Mm. Um but I did see a review from someone that was like, this order is so random and it's all over the place. I'm like, excuse me though, but it isn't. Like you weren't paying attention. And I know it looks random, but it's not. Like if you just dig a little deeper. Um, and I think that was sort of my organizing principle is I love books that do that, that make you work a little bit. And if I don't understand something, then I don't blame the author because they know what they're doing. I'm like, hey, what am I not understanding? Um, so that was kind of my... That was my thing there. Um, but yes, like physically moving, moving pages. Mm. I have a friend who does that. She d- she does it with poems in her poetry collections, but she sends us pictures of her house every now and again, and it's terrifying. Yeah. I'm, I'm notoriously allergic to editing. And so it's, <laughs> um, I often just don't know what to do. Like it overwhelms me. There's, there's too many characters. There's too many scenes. There's too many things to, know what to do with and so oftentimes i'll get through a draft or two and just be like well well we'll see wait so you have a novel well you know i I have you know one of the things i i talk about a lot is i do national novel writing month but so like i have lots of manuscripts that have seen a draft or two and then it's kind of like i don't know without you know printing stuff out and and really I don't, I, like i don't even know how to spend the time with it right like um a lot of i guess my writing process has changed over the years like it used to be a lot of really discovery writing um and then because I was working within the constraints of, of national novel writing month. It's like, okay, I need to like, at least kind of know where I'm going so that I can hit 50,000 words at a time. So I would like break things up into like five major sections that are all going to be about 10,000 words long and, and kind of know through there. But beyond that, like, um, going from there and then like a lot of my leisure time is watching like in-depth film analysis videos on youtube where it's like so and so knew 
uh, that he wanted this to be a major theme throughout. So in the first 30 seconds, you can see there's a, the little drinking bird in the back of the scene, and that's going to come back as an emotional something. Um, yeah. My brain just is, doesn't know how to do that within myself. Like, I can I can notice it. Um, but, you know, it's like one of those things. If you listen to, like, a jazz solo and you can whistle it, but then you sit down at a, at a piano or, you know, behind an instrument, and you're like... Uh, I don't know how do I how do I actually construct that I don't know like uh so yeah I love I love to just hear about how other people do yeah. that <clears throat> well I think that um it really it looks so clean and easy when you're looking at a finished product or at least someone else's journey and you know how the choices that they made but I mean the reality the reality is a lot of that stuff really comes so much later like draft 25 um, when you read your own work over and over and then you do things and you make connections that you didn't even see because you have to read it like front to back and then back to front and then see, aha, there's that drinking bird and it should go here. Mm -hmm. And those are the things that's kind of like, it's hopscotch-esque, but it is kind of like this, this puzzle that you can still rearrange, but the image, right, is, is the same. You're just going for the best version of it, right? Because a novel technically could work any kind of way um, with or without some of these little elements, right? But some of those are the ones that make it what it is. Um, so I feel like, I mean, you could do it. There's there's methods for sure, but yeah, you'd have to spend a lot of time with those, those manuscripts. Right, yeah. And that's the, I think that's also the hard part too is at least for, for a long time, I, I simply had too many ideas. Um, yeah. where it's like, I want to write a book where this happens and I want to write a book where that happens and, and so on. And, you know, within word 10,000 of novel one, I'm excited about this other idea that's completely different. Like it's not, <laughs> not easily folded within. Um, and so it's like, I just need to plow through, get through, get through draft one and then work on the other one. Um, and then maybe when I have time or I'm stuck, I can go back and edit and that, that sort of thing just never happened. Right. It's like the, it, so many of my, of my unfinished unsubmitted pieces are like that friend who you have a really fun weekend with. And you're like, we should need to do this again. This was so <laughs> fun. And then you just never talk to them again. <laughs> they never call you and you get busy with work. And then what is this? What is this giant document in my Google docs from 2016? Oh, that's right. It's this. <laughs> um, yeah. But you have also experience with this. You have manuscript consultations and editing that you offer too. Yeah. Um, so um, how did you fall in, or how, I don't know, fall into that? How did you get into that? And and how long have you been doing that? And those sort of basic questions for that. Yeah. Okay. So let's see. Um, let's go back in the timeline. Um, so first, um, I started teaching novel writing um, at Catapult, I believe in 2018 was when I started. So I've been doing that, you know, for five years until recently it folded. Um, so I was doing short workshops. Um, my I developed one workshop. I started with one that was kind of like a general sort of, you know, beginning writing um, seminar. Um, and, and that one like wasn't really that popular because there's so many classes. Um, so my director was like, okay, well, 
think of something else. Like, come back. And she was very sweet about it, but she's like, you can think of something else. Um, and so then I developed this one called 40,000 Words in 40 Days, which essentially was a very compressed, um, you know, marathon to basically write a novel in six weeks. And that one was wildly popular. It sold out every time. Um, and I actually did have a couple students that did finish first drafts, but really it was what I did was essentially taught what I did, like my method for writing my second book, you know, because I was a new mom, I was a single mom. I had literally no time. My writing time was when my son slept or like late at night or, you know, five in the morning. So it was like all the cards were stacked against me as far as like the ideal writing conditions. And then I was like, if I can do that, then I'm sure other people can do that. Um, that have, you know, as much on their plate or more um, or less and just need to learn some discipline. And that one, you know, took off. And then uh, the consultations actually happened because my former students would email me and say, hey, I have a manuscript. Would you do a consultation with me? So then I had to like Google rates, you know, like, what do I charge for this? I don't know, like talk to people that did it. Um, and then they started coming in like word of mouth. Like I would just get emails. And then once in a while, honestly, just when I needed some extra money, then I would, you know, post on Twitter, like I'm accepting manuscripts this month and I get some, but it's, you know, it's occasional. It's not all the time um, just because, I mean, I do teach a lot now, but yeah, they just, they just came. Okay, cool. Yeah. I like that. I, I think that just speaks to your prowess as a teacher then at that point. Um. I also want to okay. I also want to um talk about the uh before we go too far away from from sleepover the the Polish stuff. Yeah. Um uh are you I mean obviously you're Polish but how I don't know. How do you ask what generation somebody is? I guess I guess that's the, that's the question, right? Cuz it it yeah. seems like your family is much more Polish than my family is. I was going to ask you because your last name. Um, yeah. So how Polish are you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, it's interesting. I'm, I'm 50% Polish because both of my grandfathers are completely Polish. Um, huh. But I'm like third or fourth generation, depending on, on what side of the family you're looking at. And so my family is very Americanized. Um, we kielbasa at family gatherings. Like, <laughs> that's it really is like, I think, I think my grandpa had some accordion lessons as a kid that's that's about it it's it's not a very um i've not had a very ethnic life really at all um so i like to um i don't know i, I feel i feel like something's missing there but like i also just don't know what's missing every now and again i'll read a book from a polish author or like a book about polish culture or something and be like okay that's familiar like we're catholic too i guess that's that's the other thing is we're catholic but like i don't know it's hard to even find you know we're not in a big city or anything so it's hard to find like a polish catholic place like i don't know what differentiates polish catholic from irish catholic from whatever we had a lot of vietnamese people in our congregation growing up so yeah um where are you based right now grand rapids michigan oh okay um, and do you, do you know where your grandpas are from? Um, no. The interesting thing is I have on my dad's side a, a family historian and Roman, the 
the patriarch who came over listed in various official documentation three different towns um and only gdansk exists (laughs) (laughs) so that's my best guess on that side of the family yeah that's that's interesting um it's funny you just you don't know there's a lot i don't know either about my family um so I guess I'd be called first generation because so my parents so I'm 100% Polish my parents um, and my brother moved here well so my dad got a job here and then he was here for two years before we joined him Um, however my mom being a smart lady uh, came over to give birth when she was pregnant so I could have dual citizenship off top and then she and I went back to Poland and stayed there for two years and then my dad stayed here and then eventually you know we joined him and then my grandma also came with us because she was by herself um so my family's from lublin Mm. and and yeah and that's and that's it so i grew up you know here um i learned english i think in first grade so i was just dropped in i went to preschool kindergarten i just went to school i didn't speak english at all um we didn't know anybody we didn't have we didn't have anyone to know anyone um I guess just figured out, um, which was, which was wild. It's a wild experience. Cause it felt like I didn't really belong here, but I was also definitely not a Polish kid. Like I would go over there and kind of feel out of place. So it's like this very weird, like where, where is home? <laughs> I guess, you know, who knows? It's, it's a, probably a theme that I keep unraveling in my writing. Cause you just, you can't find it. So yeah, you keep searching. Yeah. That's so interesting that that feeling i i feel like i saw a lot of that happening in real time um uh when i was in elementary school was it was in the 90s so we had a lot of bosnians coming over um that were very clearly like it's first grade alma does not speak english and she's just Mm -hmm. she's just working through it and trying to figure it out her her handwriting's better than mine somehow like we i remember in sixth grade we had social studies textbooks and one of the kids was like hey that's my mom <laughs> on the cover <laughs> like fleeing fleeing bosnia um oh. but yeah that that idea of like where is home sort of thing is interesting because for me it's like i don't know i kind of figured out that america is not what the adults were saying pretty young mm-hmm. so it, like i've never felt like I wanted to be American, right? Like super proud of it. And so like you reach into the genealogy stuff and um and the history stuff and you're like, well, I don't know, as a kid, I don't know, medieval Poland seemed a lot less cool than like medieval Western Europe. So I I only know about like British castles or whatever. Like I know about the Hussars now, uh, which is pretty cool because of my one of my grandmothers was uh, 100% Hungarian. And so like okay. the the Polish Hungarian sort of cultural exchange thing that exists uh just kind of accidentally happened in my family which I thought was was cute. Um but yeah, um I've talked about this other times on on the podcast too where it's just kind of like just kind of like uncomfortable, right? Not having not feeling like where you are is where you should be um or like i don't know like uh. being 
being part of any sort of like affinity group that looks like me is doesn't feel like something I want to like get real hardcore into being into, you know what I mean? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it feels, it's strange. It does feel, well, you know, so we're living in Ohio right now and um, there's a big Polish community up in Cleveland and there's a lot of Polish pride hmm. and everything. And I've discovered that the less Polish someone is, the more proud they are, <laughs> you know, um, which seems, you know, it's, it's cool, I guess, but, you know, I feel like it's, you know, if you're American and you have a mix of all kinds of different nationalities, then you have to like sort of pick your favorite and then mm -hmm. identify with it because like there's no cultural identity necessarily, right? Like what is American cultural identity? What would that be? You know, because it's, it's so young and I don't know. I mean, so you have to sort of pick, I guess. Um, but yeah, I, for me, it felt normal, just not, not feeling deeply attached anywhere um or really i just feel out of place quite a lot and my husband for example is like you know born and raised in california and it's in his blood and it's all he you know writes about he's super proud and it's it's cute i love it it's adorable but i just i can't relate i got no idea what he's talking about <laughs> yeah. No, yeah i feel that i i think um you know i i see it every now and again um like it feels like there's a big push to have a sort of midwestern cultural identity that revolves around like being kind of hardy and silly and i don't know it feels kind of eastern european to me like we're gonna make the car work in the snow we're gonna figure it out and we like beer and uh and the snow is not cold it's just bad clothing and, and that it's sort just of the wind yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh my god i say that all the time yeah, it's interesting. I've been I've been finding myself uh getting more into various slices of of Americana as a result um of mm -hmm. of all of that and so I find like the weird stuff is the most interesting. Like tiki culture is fascinating to me. Um and uh, and there's so much of that like What what is that? It's it happened it is a post-World War II sort of 50s cultural thing where a bunch of people were really into Polynesian culture. A bunch of, um, a bunch of like Hollywood people went to Hawaii as it was becoming a state and were like, hey, this is cool. Let's come back and make a bunch of bars with bamboo and, and, and tiki masks and rum drinks and stuff. Um, and it like, I don't know, it's Orientalism for for Polynesia, right? It's just like, we're gonna, any culture that's got wooden masks and palms and, and bamboo, we're gonna kind of like mush together as these like idyllic places that are great to go on vacation to. Um, so tiki culture is exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, it's a hundred percent what it sounds like. Um, oh and like there is a big um, music sub group in the 50s called exotica that was like kind of like smooth jazz but with island instruments and like they would put bird calls in the songs and stuff too and it was just a bunch of bunch of white people doing this um but it's this kind of like listless grass is always greener on the other side of of the fence that i think you could probably look at like once america hit the pacific was like okay well where do we go now we've we've cultivated this atmosphere of exploration for 200 years and we got there. We're coast to coast. Now what? Um, 
and other other weird pieces of americana like um there's a subsection of hot rod car, car culture called rat rods where people take like really rusty cars and soup them up and have like um i just watched a video some guy like took a gun and like made that the gear shift of his car um and there's spikes all over the cars it's kind of like a 50s mad max sort of thing um but like as a whole right there is no like trying trying to determine an overarching unified american cultural identity that isn't be um that that isn't kind of abstracted i think is dangerous and 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 ultimately impossible but like i don't know listlessness and self-reliance and that sort of thing is what i think about and then when i when i ascribe that to america then it's like okay yeah i am american i i kind of have a hard time sitting down and and i want to define myself by the things that i do and uh that sort of thing um that was a really long walk from why is there polish in the book but <laughs> thanks for taking it with me i don't know if we even got there <laughs> why is there polish um but that's okay i mean <laughs> yeah why is there polish in the book um why is there polish well because some stuff you can't okay well two reasons number one i wanted to insert you know i mean genuine speech like genuine things that you would say also there's some things that are really not translatable um so i wanted to sort of portray that in a way that would make sense to an english-speaking reader and then also like a fun fun little treat for polish speakers who can read the stuff and you know be like aha you know because there's you know some jokes in there you know there's some um sayings that like you can't translate but everyone knows um, so I wanted it to work on two levels, you know, really, so that you don't need to understand Polish to make sense of a passage, right? Because I would always couch something so that you can figure out context clues if you need to. Or, you know, if you speak it, then it's fun. Um, but yeah, it's just, it just made sense. Mm, okay. Um, to, to that point, is this autofiction? Okay. This is where we might need to talk about autofiction. Oh, yeah. Let's do that. <laughs> So autofiction, um, first of all, do you believe in it? Is, is that a real genre? Um, what is it? <laughs> I believe that it exists. I believe, I mean, I have had people on the show who have called stuff autofiction. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I know where you're, get, where you're going. Um, my general thing about genre terms is that i think they're more helpful for the the consumer of the art than than the producer um in most cases um but i think if someone wants to label something autofiction then that's fine um well i guess like okay so i'm having just a hard time figuring out like where the line is between you know fiction proper and autofiction um like how much can be manipulated, you know, mm -hmm. because I'm not going to say that parts weren't taken from my life because they were, and I believe every, everyone pulls from their life, but also, I mean, most of it wasn't, I mean, it very much is fiction, but it reads very personal, which is mm -hmm. great. That's what I was hoping for to sort of have, um, a very close narrator. Um, 
but then I don't know. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to knock the existence of autofiction. I guess I'm just genuinely confused. Like, what does it take for something to be that? Mm. Um, Because if you were to just look at um, the construction of the book and just, and, and, you know, parse through it and say, okay, this is true to fact and this is not, you know, most of it isn't. Most of it is made up and compressed and, you know, just fake situations. But, but yeah, I mean, I obviously did pull from my life quite a bit. So I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Honestly, it's not because when you start manipulating anything that a priori is fiction, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, even in memoir and nonfiction, you, you do have some liberties that you can take with time signatures and with compressed characters. So that's not like a straight up manipulation that you can do in fiction. Um, I guess maybe what bothers me about the term is that it a lot of times it's used to minimize a book or like the work an author did, right? Because oh, then, then they can say, oh, well, you didn't really have to, to do a whole lot. Like you just wrote about your life, you know? But well, first of all, that is doing a whole lot. But but why would you even, why would you need to pick it apart like that? I mean, we would need to look at Jack Kerouac, for example. I mean, he's like the main offender in autofiction, I guess, <laughs> because mm-hmm. it's, it's all, except for his first novel. Um, it's all his life, but they are definitely very much novels. So yeah. I don't know. I'm, I can talk about this for hours, I think, but I'm willing, willing to learn. But yeah, yeah. I genuinely. That's interesting to me. Um, it's interesting to me that, that you have seen it largely as a sort of denigration of, of a work, whereas um, that's that's not what I've seen. I guess mainly because the, the people whose books are called autofiction that I also hang around um, call it that themselves or, or I don't know, um, kind of fit into a, a sort of neo-tradition or something. But um, my, my whole thing is always like, at least because of the stuff I read that's called autofiction, um, mm-hmm. worry about people um, like aspiring to write autofiction, right? Le- um, I've, I've used the term method writing before. Like, I would really rather people take care of themselves <laughs> than <laughs> than have a good, you know, an interesting thing to write about, right? Like, um, I... D- I um, as much as I love to read about 20 year olds in, in lousy apartments, you know, destroying their bodies with, with substances and, and, and bad life choices. Like I, I would really rather prefer people treat themselves well and, and make good life choices. Um, yeah. so it's, it's one of those things where it's like, I don't want necessarily people to aspire to be autofiction writers. Um, which I think you could probably also kind of point to Kerouac there too. It's like there was probably a generation of, of teenagers and 20 year olds who were like, yeah, I'm going to go on adventures and then write about them. Um, and, um, I don't know, like, uh, into the wild. I know he didn't set out to, to write a book. He just set out to live in the wild, but like, you know, please take care of yourself, everybody. So that's, that's kind of where I stand on it. Um, and, you know, I, I wonder if it's not a way to get around the fact that memoir is not a genre that is read by indie lit people, maybe. You know, I haven't done a market analysis, but that's that's a suspicion that I have, too, is calling something autofiction, because then you can take out the boring parts, make the exciting parts more exciting, and then 
not have to call it memoir because again you know there's there's quite a lot of 20 year olds who are making bad life choices that you really only need to read one or two memoirs about it before you've exhausted the uh that mineral deposit um yeah no that's true actually so you brought up a really great point um which okay so first with the memoir that's interesting um i think that memoir is sort of beholden to kind of a more rigid structure Mm. Um, there is sort of a a flow that it is supposed to take um, whereas in something like, you know, and if someone identifies their work as autofiction, that's fine. I'm not going to say, no, you're wrong. Uh, you know, um, but I think with something like autofiction, then you, you're more free to just say, okay, I'm going to write a book that concerns X, Y, and Z, and I'm going to leave out that oppressive structure of a traditional memoir and I can do whatever I want because it's, it's actually fiction. So who cares? Like there's that, um, I mean, as far as the bad life, and here's, well, here's why I don't, I, well, why I would never really call something I write autofiction is because I don't want anyone thinking about me, the author, when they're Mm. reading it. I want them to be, you know, within the world of the book, you can worry about my narrator. I worry about her. Um, You know, actually the one in the book that I just finished, I mean, Jesus Christ, like, I'm just so glad that's not me. Um, But I don't want anyone thinking about me because it's not a diary. It's not like, you know... It's not look what I did and braggy or anything like that. Um, I really do want people to sort of focus on the form and what's going on in the text and not think about my life and how many drugs I've done. <laughs> you know, like that's mm-hmm. not, you know, and as far as the 20 year olds, um, I do want them to, you know, write their books, but also dig a little deeper and think like, hey, what can I do formally here that's interesting and not like anything anyone's ever done, you know, because drug literature will exist forever, but, um, you know, we feel the need to write about it because we do want to share our strange out of body transcendent experiences or our lowest lows. Um, but we do have to be a little sophisticated too. So, um, maybe autofiction can exist, but maybe it can be elevated also. I don't know. Yeah. I like that. Um, Yeah. I like the idea of, of, of elevating it. I, I, I wonder to, oh, I don't know how to verbalize it. I'm not going to try. <laughs> Somebody else will be plagued with that thought in, in two or three episodes and, and they can, and, and they can blame, uh, us for, for whatever it is I'm going to drop on them. But yeah, Just I, I like you. <laughs> Um, I wonder also if, if autofiction is being contemporary, contemporarily used as a, um, as a, as a dog whistle for alt lit, um, Mm. since that label has a lot of baggage attached to it. Yeah. Um, okay. Alt lit. So... How do you feel about alt lit and what do you think it is? Yeah. So that's a great question. Um, I started really paying attention to indie lit probably right around 2015. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I guess I missed it when it was good. When, (laughs) when, when the so-called community 
thought it was good and said it was good. Um, I don't have a ton of alt-lit books. Um, I really enjoyed Steve Roganbuck's YouTube videos um, when he was making them. Um, and um, I, I think that that they particularly led me to think about poetry specifically in new ways. Um, or just, I don't know, in a, in a more modern way right and and not a sort of like um you know it's more than sonnets and free verse it's it's a state of mind sort of thing is i guess what he was positing at points um and so i appreciated that it also helped that at the time my my high school friends back home while i was away in college were making videos kind of similar to that that's this sort of like weird surrealist sort of just we're yelling weird things at the camera sort of thing um so being able to connect kind of that to what other people were doing i don't know i spent a couple hours reading html giant and um so i don't really have it's it's a it's 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 a dragon that i'm chasing really is trying to trying to figure out because a lot of the people i talk to who have had writing out since then who are still writing uh not a lot of people want to talk about it (laughs) (laughs) um that's so funny because you know you brought up poetry that kind of reminds me of um something eileen miles said in inferno about poetry that possibly (laughs) no one knows what the fuck it is actually which is why it's hard to talk about it and Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. seems to be the case with alt lit because once you start trying to pin it down it sort of wriggles away then you're like what about this book does this count but this one you know i don't know i think it's one of those things that really work as a self-identifier like if you think you're an alt lit writer then okay then you probably are um but if you're gonna go out and label books then that's harder you know because Because you don't know. I mean, some stuff is not that, but it is experimental writing. And like, where's the line between whatever alt lit is and experimental? And like, I really does think, I I does think, I do think that involves the community quite a lot too, Mm -hmm. because I mean, there is no alt lit without that community, right? But experimental writing does exist without a community because it's a style. Um, So I don't know. I probably got off topic there. I, I would identify it largely by, um, I mean, there, there's some like concrete things. Like I feel like it's fairly minimal, not especially flowery, you, mm-hmm. creative use of misspellings and very confessional. Um, but largely like, I don't know if you could point to a person's Twitter profile from 2015 and point to this person and be like they were all lit and i'd be like oh yeah that's right i I do remember seeing them being retweeted a lot um i think i almost hold it to some nostalgic regard just because i feel like that was the last time the internet as we know it could do something like that um in in a, a sort of art community sort of way um I feel like Vice probably had a lot to do with alt-lit, which I think recently just, like, disappeared off the internet or something. I don't know. I saw a lot of people freaking out about about Vice happening, so maybe we won't be plagued by the ghost of, of alt-lit very much longer because no one will know what it is anymore. <laughs> um, but, yeah, uh, like, I don't um, know. It felt like yeah, a community. I think Vice, yeah, something happened there. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know. I, what do you think is next, though? I have such a hard time thinking about what that is. I feel like we're going back in time to some extent. Um, and maybe this is because I've been reading a lot of 2600, um, which is a, a, a hacker magazine. I, I say hacker in air quotes, not because the magazine is hacker in air quotes, but because I don't want you to get any ex expectations about how much I understand about computers. It's more of a, I read it because I don't know what's going on sort of thing. Um, but be reading a lot of that, and there's a lot of people who are talking about the glory days of back when everything was a was a bbs and you know like even knowing somebody in real life who knew how to get to the internet was like special and so an internet community meant something right um yeah i've i've long been on this show and in my personal life a sort of community skeptic i, I don't know like what what is the writer community and am i part of it I don't know. Where do they meet? Where do they go? <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know. I, maybe I'm just old about that. So, like, I don't know. I feel like we're getting into a place where people are going to be much more siloed as social media and the internet just in general becomes less and less user-friendly. People mm -hmm. are going to coagulate around the people they actually enjoy hanging out with. And you're going to have a million different group chats and discord channels um and so it will almost be like pre-internet like regional like east coast writing and west coast writing are different or i guess i think about that more in like music terms right how there's the midwest hip-hop scene is very different from either of the coastal scenes which are different from themselves and the south is its own beast um and so i almost wonder if it'll be something like that and it'll be harder to classify but like, as yeah. I, I think it'll be something like that, where, where we'll actually form communities and I don't know, maybe because owning houses is going to be so much harder. People are actually going to just like moved by all their friends. <laughs> and so they're like regional <laughs> scenes will actually re-erupt because people from disparate parts of the country will have coalesced to be near people they like and then like started going to readings again um yeah i don't know is, is time a flat circle as as true detective would have us believe perhaps it is i don't know <laughs> um no i don't know that's that's interesting yeah i mean the internet really was um obviously like a main ingredient in all the internet writing um you know, any of that stuff, post-blogging, right? Mm -hmm. um, the thought catalog thing, um, all of that, which there's a lot of writers that got started on there that, you know, became all kinds of things like Altlet, but then also, you know, YouTubers and um, I don't know. Yeah, it was very connected. And now you're right. There's, it just, it feels like you're sort of shouting into the void um, and it feels just so depressing and, I don't know. It used to be fun, kind of. Um, <laughs> yeah. Once I've had every single platform, um, and now I only have one. Um, mm -hmm. And even that one, I'm reluctant to even have because it's just it feels dispassionate. I mean, there's stuff like you just get ads constantly, and no one sees your posts, and it's like 
why am I doing this? Um, so I think you're right. I think it is leaning more personal. Um, I think it is leaning more regional. And it's interesting to see like how many um, sort of hotspots are going to pop up that aren't, you know, New York and Portland <laughs> or possibly, possibly LA. I don't know. Yeah. Well, then you can look at other, other things too. Like we're going to look at writing scenes in New York and be like, okay, well, how, how many of these people are just using their parents' money and are, and is that going to stop us from caring about what they have to say? Um, and, and other things like that. I don't know. What would you like to happen? You know, I... enough of what we think is going to happen. What would you like to happen? Oh my gosh. Um, I would like for people to, <laughs> I would like for people to actually read books and mm -hmm. and look at the books themselves and you know what they're doing and you know their merits rather than you know popularity publicity and like boosting people they like even though the book sucks like I would love some actual literary discourse out there doesn't have to be I mean I'm not saying like crit I mean critics I feel like critics should exist. They shouldn't be writers. They should be critics. Like that's their job. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like critics should be not afraid to do that job um, and not just kind of, you know, how you read reviews and you're like, okay, this person is really being nice. <laughs> like they're really not trying, um, you know, or else if they're being critical, then it's read as a takedown piece. Mm -hmm. And like, mm -hmm. that might not be, you know, like why is it one or the other? Why not just look at the book? It doesn't have to be that person at all. Um, because why that discussion doesn't happen usually until like 50 or 100 years into the future. So I would love to be there more of a focus on the art itself rather than everything surrounding it, because it feels like once a book's like, you know, it's a commodity, it's a product. And I have to worry about this now as, you know, someone who is on the verge of going on submission, like that is a product that I'm bringing out in the world. And, and that is going to entail, you know, press cycles and merch and, and all kinds of things. And it's like, that's awesome. But I would really also love people to read it and engage with it. And yes, write those bad reviews if you want to, you know, pay attention. So that's what I'd like to see. I like that. Yeah. Engage with the writing, you cowards. Yeah, it's okay. It doesn't mean like if someone doesn't like your book, it doesn't mean they don't like you. You're not supposed to be conflating the writing with the writer anyway. Right. So, right. you know, yeah. there's plenty of people that I, I love in person whose work I, I don't love. And obviously I don't, I don't tell them to their face, but I'm still allowed to think so, you know? Yeah. I, I think that's, I think that's good and useful. I, I, I don't think I'll be able to do that. Um, but in, in terms of, <laughs> in terms of like, I don't know, writing bad reviews or whatever I have, um, long been working on this manifesto about how liking art is better than not liking art yeah i'm also like i have a bachelor's degree in broadcasting i don't have an mfa i, I really don't know what i'm doing right the podcast exists largely in part so that i can talk to people who do know what they're doing and then hopefully use that for myself later um uh but this manifesto of like liking something is a skill and it it requires you to dig deeper especially within work that you don't like like what is it what is in here that i can hold on to and then that as a as a vehicle for finding like the perfect piece of art for you um but i also think bad reviews are important right we can't just 
if you're going to write a good review, it has to be very specific as to why, and it should probably reveal something about the critic, right? Like, um, I guess I guess that's that that needs to be in 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 the manifesto. Is like if you're going to talk about something, it needs to reveal something about yourself. Um, Absolutely, and I really do think that you know those those positive and negative reviews that should be, I feel like the realm of actual critics, not writers writing responses. Um, Because, you know, that, you know, it's not interesting to me to read a writer saying, I liked this book or I didn't like it. It's like, well, no, like show me how you engaged with it. Okay. Like, I don't want to know anything about if you liked it or not, but what, what happened to you as you're reading it. Right. So um, when I, publish or solicit reviews for black lipstick for example they're creative reviews and they're all kind of personal essays like personal odysseys like within the span of a book right um so they're someone has an experience reading a book and they write about that so it's about the book but as much about the author and what happened to them and of course like specifics will pop up um but it really is about that interplay quite a lot and um you know, when I write them um, for people, then they're creative, but mostly about, you know, what's what's in the book that is different, that is luminescent, like what's working especially well, and what would make someone really pay attention to it rather than this book was good. I liked it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And it's it rarely is it about the plot or anything like that. It's it's some kernel. It's like, you know, the author's philosophy coming through. Like, I look for that. Um you know, so I feel like writers need to be reviewing books that way, like really having sort of personal relationships with them and and showing showing everyone what they found. Yeah. Okay. So let's let's take a half a step back and talk about black lipstick then. Um, uh, introduce that to the person who does not know. Okay. Well, black lipstick is um, the Substack uh, magazine that I created a year ago. Um, Essentially, it just it showed up um, in my consciousness as this project that I needed. I needed to do something. I had just experienced the third in a line of miscarriages, and then I just decided that I was done trying to have another kid. And but I still had all this creative energy, so it just really fell into place. I was like, "Aha! This is perfect." Um, so it is a nonfiction-based publication. Um, I run personal essays, uh, creative reviews, like I mentioned interviews with artists, writers. Um, I also say self-made icons. I got to interview my favorite reality star. So like, you know, weird stuff like that pops up. And um, recently I just um, partnered with this organization called Empowerment Avenue, um, wherein I'm featuring writing by incarcerated um, queer and women writers regularly. Um, So I take submissions, edit, work with them, um, and then they run on the site. And then occasionally, every now and then, I'll post something that I wrote. Um, I have a little thing, a little column called Bootleg Life Journal. Um, and that's for the paid subscribers. And I just I write stuff on there um, for them every now and then. Nice. Yeah. Fantastic. I love that. Um, I particularly appreciate the uh, uh, the work with incarcerated writers. Um it's one of those avenues of, I don't know, my political philosophy that's been developing slowly over 
more recently than than other ideas like prison abolition and things like that and and, and working with uh incarcerated people and stuff and i think that might be a good place for me to start getting more of a i don't know insider's view which is i think not the way i I, I would prefer to say it if if i knew what i wanted to say exactly but (laughs) perhaps you know what i mean um yeah um no absolutely like that is that's important um for sure but i feel like here's the thing that i've noticed too is that um you know a lot of publications will commission you know pieces from mm -hmm. incarcerated writers um, but they're mostly features and there really isn't anywhere that you know features them regularly like that has a space for that um which you know am i gonna do it every single month well i don't know if there's submissions yeah um but the space exists specifically for that and it's not just a specialty like this month we're featuring an essay by this incarcerated writer um and i learned through working with empowerment avenue that especially for women and queer people they you know have fewer opportunities to publish to work with editors um and also most of the time they don't get paid Mm -hmm. which is wild because you know those people actually that money does make a difference to them um and you know the one thing i'll note is that black lipstick is a paying publication um i pay 150 dollars for an essay not amazingly huge money um but i feel like that money would go further for a person you know, for a person's books rather than for someone, you know, just because like they have tons of money, they're fine. Um, But beyond that, it's really, it's not about that. It's really about like, you know, them building up their CV, right? So that when they're out, they can, they can do things, you know, they've, they've been working, you know, they've been getting their name out there. Um, They have, they have a publication history and it's easier for them. So there's that aspect as well. Yeah. And also, uh, going back to nearly the beginning of, of you being a teacher, you have a class coming up that has a spot left. I want to make sure Just that we fun. talk about that. Talk about, <laughs> so, so talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so uh, there's this new, so, you know, Catapult folded last year. Mm-hmm. Um, and in its wake, uh, a lot of writing organizations have sort of cropped up um, different, different um, you know, communities and you know, I guess well, organizations is the only way to call them um, that offer classes and sort of like fill the space that Catapult left. Um, and while some of them are attached to universities and institutions, there are a lot that are independent. Um, so this one called Writing Collab um, just came into existence. Um, one of the co-founders is Sarah Lippman. Um, so, you know, you might know her as a formidable short story writer. Um, She's been, I believe, teaching for over 25 years and writing and she's wonderful. And she actually took my workshop at Catapult, you know, so when I saw the class list and I saw her name on it, I was like hyperventilating, like, oh my God, why is Sarah Lippman taking my class? That's insane. I was so nervous. Um, But then after that, you know, she really liked it. She liked, um, you know, my teaching philosophy and, and really her experience. So when she started you know, co-founded writing collab, you know, she reached out and was like, Hey, do you want to develop a class? Um, so this is the first class that I've developed 100% on my own, um, full creative license. And it's 
really exciting because we're going to do a lot of things that normally you wouldn't in a traditional like it's not really like a generator as much as an artist space mm. for a year i mean you can come away with the draft um or not and just acquire the toolkit um but we're really going to be digging deep into um just the bones of novel craft and then essentially figuring out your foundation as a writer and an artist and utilizing all tools right so art tarot astrology like learning all of that um, not in a let's manifest stuff way, but in a let's understand energy way. So you can use that in your practice. Oh, man. I feel like we missed. I, I feel like we missed out on a lot of things. Okay. We're, we're running, running up against the hour mark. I just want to real yep. quick bring. I love the idea of uh, tarot. Um, it is not a secret for people who listen to the podcast that, that I, I've had, I don't know, a couple years long fascination with the Western esoteric tradition, uh, in terms of study. Um, but I also like to, to play with things. I love the idea of, uh, what I call applied randomness. And I think tarot is really good for that. I love just, you know, I don't, I have a hard time. I was raised Catholic. I think I mentioned that. Um, so I've, I have a hard time thinking that that me shuffling cards um, and then pulling something uh, is is down to something supernatural. But I do love that every time I do it, it makes sense to me. Um, and I don't know. Is that kind of this kind of where you're at, or are you you in a different place with with divinatory things? Yeah, so I actually, so I don't use it really for divination as much as determining like, you know, when things will happen or, you know, it's more about orienting myself. And I feel like for, you know, a writer and artist, you know, using tools that sharpen your interpretation um, skills and um, I mean, really like your magnification, like that is very useful. Um, do I believe in like a divine supernatural like moving the cards i want to say no but there are crazy coincidences and synchronicities that show up and like you can't you can't make this up and in a way it does not seem random like um what i do actually is um i pull a card most days um just to sort of like check in with myself and i also keep track of you know what i get in a month and there are like recurring cards or suits for example um, so for example, in, um, here, let me look, I can tell you in January, um, the hermit card showed up for me six times, all different decks. Um, I know energetically, like a deck can get used to you and like, you can pull the same thing, but I have, I think maybe 12 of them and the hermit just kept popping up and up and up. And I'm like, okay, I'm listening. Um, that's something like that's, that's a theme. That's something I need to look at. So that was an avenue into self-study because a hermit being um, a member of the major arcana, that is, that's big themes. Like that's stuff that's going to unravel over months, um, not just your little everyday things. So, um, yeah. And then the suit of wands was dominant, which makes sense. I'm trying to like bang out these revisions on my book and it's like, let's go. The eight of wands says, you know, move your ass. Um, that showed up. And then February was swords constantly. And the Ten of Swords, Ten of Swords, Ten of Swords. And that's when I was realizing, like, I was treating my body like shit. And that imagery was not about, like, some kind of, like, 
you know, trauma in my life, like someone betrayed me, which can happen, but I was literally stabbing myself in the back with the way that I was treating myself. And I was like, okay, I will make a change. So it's like the tool for self-knowledge. Um, you can also use it, which one thing we're going to do in class is figure out how to use this for your creative practice. And instead of like working, like pushing through and like working sort of against the vibes, if you will, um, working with them and figuring out how to use this to your creative advantage at all times. So um, do I believe in it? Yeah. Do I know how it works? No, <laughs> not at all, but it works. So Black Lipstick and Miss Manhattan co-hosted a reading um, and I read this to open and it is nonfiction. It's not not a fiction. It's actually nonfiction. All this happened. All right. This is called Beanheads and it was originally published um, on X-Ray in 2021. In the little free library was a hand-sewn chapbook with poems from all the poets who had read at Beanheads. The open mic was every Friday and gray men would shuffle in to crinkle coffee-stained pages at the microphone. It was an event. There were gasps and snaps and silence. I didn't understand it. There I was, 15 years old and crafting big papers about the Count of Monte Cristo and someone had written this. A moral amnesty. A parliament of stalking butlers. Deafening silence over the telephone. The Pope flows like running water. Calligraphy makes the queen go blind. The poets must be onto something though, because even now, after all my university degrees and formal trainings, this is still the only poem I know by heart. The only other girl at Beanheads was a barista. I envied her job, if only for the fact that she got to smell coffee and look at people instead of smell steramine and look at their food remains. She asked me the Cambridge equivalent of, what do you want to be when you grow up? Which was, what are you going to do when you get out of here? Cambridge, New York was a tiny town that maybe after a couple beers could pass for a bootleg star's hollow, but I was too underage and nervous to make friends. So after work, I'd go straight back to my godfather's place to listen to Lacuna Coil and smoke ecstasy herbal cigarettes and write down my dreams. I made boxes of mac and cheese and took them to my room to eat alone. I told the barista I didn't know what I was going to do, but I wanted to write. She asked if I'd ever heard of Nylon Magazine. I hadn't. She said it was her favorite, and the next day she brought in a copy. Growing up in Stowe, Ohio, all the magazines for sale at the Discount Drug Mart in the early 2000s were different versions of the same thing. Glamour and Cosmo and Vogue, tailored to caricatures of women, it seemed like a lot of work to learn how to be. Down a step, Seventeen magazine showed smiling girls who had solid friendships and wore butterfly clips, whose problems had to do with what extracurriculars to give up because they were president of too many. I wonder how my life would have been different if I'd known about Rookie then, but if you're always validated, there's nothing left to push against. Nylon was beyond this. No diet tips, no harrowing sex advice, no recommendations for job placement during a blowjob. There were record recommendations and reviews of actual books. Young fashion designers who made nonsensical clothes worn by stone-looking models and hand-drawn products on the beauty page. Chartreuse lipstick, three pairs of socks on a pair of untoned calves stuffed inside fuchsia jelly platforms, unbrushed hair, and absurdly short bangs. Fashion that made you go, what the fuck? No $2,000 trench coats that were fucking beige. And there was something else. 
the private icon. Each month, the private icon featured a heroine or set of heroines from a cult film with a description of what made them iconic, plus a recommended list of clothes and products with which to emulate their style. Alabama from True Romance, Catherine Deneuve in The Hunger, Winona and Angelina, the OG fucked up gal pals and Girl Interrupted. According to Nylon, canonization was not only possible, it was accessible by formula. Instead of, instead of becoming your best self, as the other magazines instructed you to do, you could play characters. If you were having a hard time becoming somebody on your own, you could assemble the conflicts of elements that had made somebody else unforgettable. If you wanted, you could buy the exact shade of lipstick worn by Penny Lane. I wish I could live in New York and write for nylon, the barista said. And that was that. And then we went back to being dishwasher and barista, not going out after work and not saying much more to each other. And sooner or later, the summer ended and I took my under the table money and went home, along with the copy of nylon and the chapbook with a moral amnesty in it. Eventually, I moved to New York and replaced the herbal cigarettes with menthols and the mac and cheese with salads. I kept eating in my room alone. The magazines came every month to my Alphabet City apartment. I had a Victoria's Secret angel for downstairs neighbor and got my nails done next to Justin Vivian Bond. I tried interesting things with scarves and lipstick and bought an ugly pair of Miu Miu sandals at the Buffalo Exchange down the street. They were so ugly, not one single person liked them on Instagram. And they fell apart on my way to buy a raw activated coconut something. You had to eat like an it girl, which was something that, like the private icon in real time it involved a lot of raw organics punctuated by the occasional craving for Big Mac and fries. After which, I dumped the sandals in a trash can on Avenue B and walked the rest of the way to Revolution barefoot, really living. And then, I did end up writing for Nylon. I emailed an editor on the suggestion of my girlfriend and got a freelance gig writing beauty articles. Well, sooner or later, I'd be hired to write features, I thought, and go on assignments, and the world would open up. I felt justified in having subscribed to Nylon, stacking the magazines up in a pile along the wall for lack of a bookshelf, knowing I could write anything in there better than the people they hired. None of that happened. A handful of my pieces were published online. They weren't hiring staff writers anymore, they said, on account of the budget. I started a series called Beauty in the Book that made it girls out of indie novel heroines. The series died after one installment. Nothing I did ever made it to print. And so, the closest I came to being an it girl was walking home from Hell's Kitchen in the rain at 3.30 in the morning, wearing Jeffrey Campbell Lita's when they were still cool and a see-through skin graft dress with a leather harness and no bra, finally skinny from Adderall and out of my mind on cocaine, posing for invisible cameras in the empty glow streets of Times Square, a show for no audience. That time and the time a Teen Vogue editor tried on my Balmain coat and tweeted, I'm tweeting from inside a Balmain coat or the time I went to the standard at the High Line with a pretty girl who convinced me we were pretty enough to get in upstairs sans guest list, and was right, and we left our dates downstairs playing pool even though I suspected there was no guest list, and was right, and had $18 vodka gimlets across from Rosie Huntington Whiteley. That's my life in magazine copy. And you are right about New York. It is expensive. Nylon still owes me $150, and they stopped answering my emails.